Mark 6, 16. When Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. He's been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Father, you love us, you direct us, you correct us. And today by your spirit, reveal truth for us because the purpose of your truth is to transform us. Not just to hear words, but to be transformed by your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Herod had arrested John the Baptist. Herod was the king in Jerusalem, appointed by the Roman Empire. He had great power and authority in Israel. It says, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. That's kind of an interesting contrast. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard John gladly. He was appreciative of his ministry. Then an opportune day came when Herod was on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. When Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Wow. Price tags. Price tags. Have you ever had sticker shock? Anybody? Herod was celebrating his birthday. So he calls for his posse, the military leaders, uh, those around him in, in authority with him in his cabinet, And then certain key leaders from Galilee, the politically inspired Jews who wanted to go along and get along with everybody, you know, a a huge party. Josephus writes, there was a huge celebration. There was eating and drinking, exchanging of gifts that went on for several days. And just before this birthday occasion, Herod had gone to the banks of the Jordan River to hear this man of God preach. John the Baptist had a tremendous anointing and great authority, and it moved people to repentance. When he saw Herod there with his wife, John addressed their relationship. John said to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Thank God for the boldness of this country preacher who stood up in the face of the empire and pointed his finger and said, what you're doing is not lawful. It's not what the will of the Lord is for you to be doing. In boldness, John spoke up against the king. God, give us some preachers and pulpits in America again today that will stand up and tell the truth without fear and unashamedly. It exposed the sin of Herod. But it was his wife who became infuriated, and she hated John the Baptist. So Herod has John in prison, but Herod was attracted to the message of John. So affected was Herod 
that after he has John arrested, he would go to the prison and sit and listen to what John had to say. He protected John the Baptist. He looked out for John the Baptist, made sure that no other prisoners could harm him. And he wanted to hear more of what John had to say. It's amazing. For this powerful king, he goes to the prison to hear from a preacher because he knows there's something different about this man. Now, Herod was a weak man. Herod's downfall, not so much that he hated John, he was personally, morally weak. And when you are weak and never deal with that weakness, it's a matter of time before you begin to do bad things. The word says, Herod feared John. His fear of John was a reverent respect for the Baptist. He respected him. Why? Because John the Baptist was a just man. He was a holy man. He was fair. He told the truth. And he was honoring to God, knowing that he was a just and holy man. He protected him. So he would listen to John and listen to his heart. This is a just man. This is an honest man. This man's preaching truth. And even though he's humiliated me and preaches against my lifestyle, I respect John because he's honest and he's fair and he's holy. And Herod heard John gladly, it says. He kind of liked it. There was something about the anointing on John that was having an effect on Herod. And even though Herod was an evil, wicked man, he was very intrigued by the message John would preach and his passion and his lifestyle, which was highly unusual. On the flip side, Herod's wife Herodias would have killed John. She hated John the Baptist. Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. So the Word of God outlines this drama. Herod is deeply affected by John the Baptist. Herodias, his wife, hated John the Baptist and would have killed him given the opportunity. If it wouldn't have trashed her expensive gowns and damaged her Jimmy Choo shoes, she would have waded into the Jordan and drowned him. She was furious with John for in any way exposing her sinful lifestyle. Can you imagine the strife in their home? Herod loves John the Baptist. Herodias hates John the Baptist. There was contention in their home over John. Herodias would have liked to have killed the Baptist because John said, your marriage is unlawful. There was an elephant in the room between Herod and Herodias in the palace. And if John's name was mentioned, Herodias would go ballistic. Arguments. Herod, he exposed us. I mean, it's like WikiLeaks. Everything's out. I mean, you can't hide it, right? All the speeches, all the lies, all the pay for play, all the stuff, it's all coming out. Herod, he exposed us. You need to kill him. Why are you leaving him alive? Their home was contentious over John the Baptist. Then the birthday of Herod rolls around. It's a huge party for the king. Historians tell us it was an immense gathering. The crowd is in party mode. It's a party for primarily the male leaders of the land, of his culture, of Jerusalem. It's also his military leaders from Rome. They're there. And then, of course, the Jews who will want to be a part of it and want to stay in good favor with the Romans. And, you know, when men gather and they decide to run the party, it can be a little different. 
You get a bunch of guys in a man cave. Herod's birthday party goes on for days. There's eating, there's drinking, there's braggadocia. You know, they're not polite anymore. They're not, would you please pass me a dinner roll? No, they take their knife out and stab the roll and bring it back to them and their plate. They don't care if their sleeves are dragging through the food. It's like eating at medieval times. They became unruly, loud, stupid in their behavior. And as they party for a few days and they drink and they celebrate, after the party slows down a little bit, it's time for entertainment. And the word records there would be a dance routine by Herod's stepdaughter. We don't know because the word doesn't tell us what kind of a dance it was. The hokey pokey. <laughs> That's not what it was all about, by the way. There was probably more to it. Okay? She was not tap dancing. When she comes out of Herod's birthday cake with a bunch of drunk guys there, this beautiful girl appears and she carries on in front of them. And this, as she does that, they're going crazy. And Herod himself, because he has let himself cave in to his fleshly desires, eating, drinking, partying, his weakness is manifest. And he's in this wrong atmosphere with the wrong people, and he's about to do something very bad. Herod is a mess. His ego's out of control. The men around him are cheering him on. Now it's time to pay the dancer. What do you want for payment for the entertainment you provided us? You have pleased me. That's the phrase he used with her. So I will give you up to half of my kingdom. What's your request? Name the price. Now, the name Herod comes from the Greek word hero. He was given hero status in the Roman Empire, and he loved the power swirling around him. It's kind of like some of these that just won't let go of it. They get in it, and they make a career out of it, never worked a normal job in their life, and all they want to do is hang on to power. And he loved it. He was their hero. He was the king. He got to make the decisions. He enjoyed the adulation. He enjoyed the accolades. And, and now some males have a little bit of a predisposition to wanting to identify as with an, a superhero as young boys. You know, they want to be Spider-Man or Superman or wear a cape like Batman or become Captain America with a, with a shield or Iron Man. And now even the young ladies... Uh, um, one of them sits on my lap periodically and says, hey, Papa, go to DC Girl Superheroes, okay? You know, they, they want to take risks and they want to act out. And you warned them that you can't fly. You're going to break an arm. You're going to break an ankle. If you come off that limb, you're not going to go airborne. You're going to break something. The word says Herod was pleased. This hero was pleased by her. In the Greek, it means lifting an anchor and being carried away. When you pull an anchor up and then you get carried away by the tide, Herod was unhinged. All restraint was gone. He got carried away. And the word says this, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's uh, daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Sin is pleasurable for a season. In this moment, of hero status among all these others who are in leadership throughout Israel, he makes a pledge. Half of what I own. What will she ask for? Will she want me to build her a palace? Will she want some gold and jewelry? And this is going to alter the, the future of her days and life because she can have anything she desires. But instead of giving him an immediate answer, notice, when it's time to pay the high cost of low living, you don't decide the price. 
she excuses herself and goes into another room and confers with her mother who hates John the Baptist. She says to her mother, Herod said, I can have up to half of the kingdom. What should I ask for? They're waiting for me, mother. I need to get back there right away. They're all waiting. What do I do? Herodias said, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Evil, bitter, convicted of sin, but unrepentant. I never want to hear the voice of that Baptist again. He kept screaming to me, you need to repent. I do not want to hear his voice again. Have his head cut off and silence the voice of conviction. So she re-entered the palace hall and made her request to Herod. She came in with haste to the king and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And Herod is hit with great regret for this promise. The king was exceedingly sorry. The hero had been happy. Now the king is regretful. Whatever pleases Herod in our lives breaks the heart of the king in our lives. Every person has two natures battling inside. And the hero side, ego and flesh and what it demands, or the king, the perspective of God and the truth and what he desires and how we should live. And if you please the hero side, you're always going to make the king side exceedingly sorry. What excites the hero does not please the king. You can be ruled by the hero or by the king, but never both, for no man can serve two masters. The king is exceedingly sorrowful because he respected John. He liked John. He wanted the voice of John to speak into his life. And whenever he heard the convicting message of John, he had this sense of, this is truth. This is right. What he's saying to me makes sense. It's touching something deep in my spirit. Herod, the hero, speaks of flesh and carnal desires. And Herod's stepdaughter, who danced, she speaks of the pleasures of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life the enticing web that Satan spreads. The stepdaughter was used as a web to trap the Herod. She can be found at times on your computer screen. She's constantly attempting to enter some way into your life through a movie you think is okay to go see, and yet it's trash and there's garbage in it, and for a little bit of good you may derive out of it, You've exposed yourself to stuff you don't want to watch, to feed the ego, to feed the carnal desire. Then there is this manipulating character because remember, Satan does not want you ruling and reigning in your home or or in your life or in your character. He wants your destruction. So Herodias speaks of the plotting of Satan, the lion who goes about seeking whom he may devour. And the decision to kill John was made in the shadows of another room, behind the scenes, plotting, manipulating, scheming, because the cost of the dance was carefully calculated to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And she was plotting behind the setup. Satan sits in the dark, not revealing himself. We're allowed to feed our ego, to feed the hero, to feed the carnal desires, 
You can dance with it, he whispers. You can play with it, and it won't hurt you. In the shadows as she waits, she then decides the cost of the dance. You don't get to decide. She decided. You don't decide what you're going to pay for that dance. She did. You don't get to decide, well, I'm willing to pay this or negotiate, let me pay that. You don't get to decide. The cost of the dance will be decided in another room by your adversary himself. And you may look at the price tag of your dance with the flesh. You may decide, that's a price. I think I can pay that. You look at the price tag. You determine that it's something that I think I can step up for. But you don't decide the high cost of low living. The cost of the dance will be decided by someone not even invited to the party. Because when you dance with sin, there will be a cost. And I promise you, there will be sticker shock. Because you won't decide the price to pay. There are no free dances. When she dances for you, you will pay. The decision is out of your hands. Rhoda's daughter is now being used by her mother. The DNA of evil in the mother is passed into the child. And she says to her, get the head of John the Baptist on a platter. That voice that was preaching, repent, change your ways. She said, I don't want to hear that voice of conviction any longer. I I will be in this relationship. I know it's not of God. I know it's not blessed of God. But I don't want that voice convicting me and bringing any guilt trip on me. I love this relationship. I love the sin I'm in. I, I want the voice of conviction away from me. That voice that's urging me to repent and to change and to go a new direction. I do not want to hear that voice anymore. So the cost of the dance, the silencing of the voice of John the Baptist. And when John's head hit the floor, you'll never hear the word repent again. John would never cry in her ear again, repent, change. If there are compromises in your life and you're hearing that voice say, stop, change, repent, You're so blessed and don't know it because the most dangerous day of your life is when you no longer hear that voice. When you no longer hear that voice, it means you have had to pay the price for the dancer, which means you have cut off that voice. And suddenly you've cut off that voice that's saying to you, change. Imagine the moment Herod and Herodias are immediately reconciled. Getting along better now because when you stop attending services, when you stop hearing the word, you'll get along just fine with the devil. He'll he'll let the pressure off of you because you'll get to accommodate your sin. But when you come to church and hear a message from God right up in your business and you start feeling the tension, which is called conviction which needs to be once again throughout the hearts and lives of those who serve the Lord, the cry to change is gone when there is no more conviction. Now they're getting along well. They're holding hands. They're reconciling. There's no conviction. There's no sense of guilt. There's no sense of wrongdoing because the pastor's voice is now silent. 
you left the place God planted you for a voice less challenging and one that just enables. And that's how people get to sit in services. And they think, if you think you're going to change me, you're crazy. I hear you. I feel you. If you think you're going to change my style or my way of interpreting Christianity or change my thinking so I can mature into the leader that God has destined me to be, listen, I will dance the way I choose and with whom I choose. The result of that kind of thinking is the gross lack of literacy when it comes to understanding the word of the living God spreading throughout the United States of America. If that's the case, and you don't feel convicted about putting anything before the Lord that you choose to, may I be blunt? If you're at ease, and if you're not convicted about falling and failing and your unwillingness to develop and mature and grow, and that takes stretching and pulling, no conviction about missing church for any reason, some of which may be good, what you have done is you've already paid the dancer. No more conviction. And when you no longer feel a sense that there is room for continuous change, God's not done changing us. God's continuously looking for ways in which he can mold us into the image of his son. Then you have already lost the voice of repentance. And while I'm preaching, the Holy Spirit is bringing up your dancer. Thank God. His voice, John's, the Spirit of God, is in your ear. Because it's proof of your salvation. It's proof of the Holy Spirit still residing with you. I thank God for conviction. It's encouraging that he comes to me and says, I want this modified. I want this changed. I don't like this attitude. The Western church has lost the sense of conviction. I grew up in the Assemblies of God, church like ours. By the time I was seven or eight years old in VBS, I would sit in a seat in the auditorium. A lady evangelist would be preaching the gospel at the end of all this, the fun and the series and the sessions of the morning. And I remember sitting there as a seven and eight-year-old boy with tears running down my face. Couldn't wait to get to the altar to give my life fully to the Lord because I was under conviction. Conviction. We don't even want to use the word sin in some of some of God pulpits today. We don't speak of morality, of right and wrong. We won't touch on any issue that's been politicized by the culture, most of which belong to us because they're biblical issues. And if the church won't speak about it, the world never will. And when we have lost our voice, we will have lost it all. Everything. John's voice was gone. The day will come when the party will end and you'll recognize the cost. When she told Herod the cost to dance with the flesh, he went from exceedingly glad because she was, he was pleased with her to exceedingly sorrowful because that's what the flesh will do. When God's word tells you to remain moral, to live pleasing to him, 
to keep him first in your life. And then you go out into the culture and you meet someone and the everyone is doing it mentality takes over and you go from exceedingly glad to exceedingly sad and then the end of it is pain, regret, and guilt. It costs you the voice of conviction because you have to meet John the Baptist first before you ever meet Jesus. John was the forerunner as the Holy Spirit is to the ministry of Jesus in our lives. Because without repentance, you never get an encounter. You never get introduced to Jesus Christ, the presence of the Lord. And if you lose the voice of conviction of sin, you will lose the presence of Jesus. So the final payment for the dancer is one of the saddest passages in all of God's Word. The final payment to the dancer wasn't the head of John. I'll show you what it was. And it's a price everybody who takes the same steps will pay. You see, if Herod had walked out of that dance before it ended, if Herod had stopped the dance, he would not have had to pay that kind of a price. And hear this voice. Stop the dance. You stop now. Stop while there's still forgiveness. Stop while God's mercy is still available. Stop it while you're hearing the voice saying, change, repent. If you stop before the dance is finished, you don't have to pay the price for the dance. That's what the cross is all about. That's what the love and forgiveness of Jesus and mercy of Jesus is all about. The cross covers us. Got it covered for you. But if you don't walk away, you'll have to pay the dancer. Stop the affair. Break off the wrong relationship. It will cost you your children. Because when your child says to you, no, you can't walk me down the aisle, you cheated on my mother. You walked out on us. No, Dad. Sorry. You can be silent in church today, but you know what this is. It's the truth. And it will cost you. Stop the drinking. Stop the dance. Stop the immorality. Stop the substance abuse. Stop the hypocrisy. Stop the gossip. Stop the division. Stop the lying. Stop the idol worship. No matter what you put in the place of God in your life in first spot, even if it has good attributes and qualities, it's still sin before the Lord. And if God is no longer first every day of your life, stop that dance today. Because you can't do wrong and be right. You will pay for the dance. But if you stop now, God's mercy will cover you. It's the message that God tried to get through to Israel time and again. And then they came up on a time and an error in their history when God sent Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zephaniah to Israel. And they would preach and they would call for repentance as John the Baptist did. And Israel, Israel would forget them and ignore them and persecute them and even try to put them to death for speaking this kind of a message because they were engrossed in their idol worship. And God finally said, I sent them to you. You would not listen. It cost them 70 years of their lives to pay that dancer. And if you don't stop, see, the book of Revelation speaks of the space of grace. I believe God's given us in our culture a space of grace. My God, we better make a turn. We had better make a turn in this culture. Because God will allow happen to us what he allowed to happen to Israel. 
God will give you a time frame to stop the dance and walk away at a minimum cost. So you get off that. You walk away from that. And if you remain and the space of grace ends, you're going to have to pay for the dance. And you don't get to decide the cost. The devil does. It might cost you your children. It might cost you your freedom. And we're on the brink of that in this culture. It might cost you your career. It might cost you your marriage. You know, there was an era in our history when we understood, our fathers understood, the best form of government is self-government. When we had the moral fiber and the moral strength and the moral stability to govern ourselves, and the government per se was a very small, limited entity that was described and given specific things to do and limited in what they could do. In the last 50 years, we have stopped a lot of self-governing because our moral platform has collapsed underneath us and we're, we're forfeiting and abdicating government to others to tell us what's right and what's wrong and what to do and not do. We're in a very dangerous place today, saints, a very dangerous place. It could cost you your children, your freedom, your career. It could cost you your marriage to dance like this. It might cost you your health or even your wealth. It might cost you your reputation. You don't decide the cost. The devil does. Now watch the final cost of this dance. Time has passed. Jesus' ministry has continued to flourish. John's been executed. Herod is sorrowful. He was sad. He had to keep that oath and cut off the voice of repentance in his life. Now let me tell you the rest of the story. Jesus has now been arrested. He's about to be crucified. And they send Jesus to the house of Herod, the one that cut off the voice of repentance. Watch this. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. For he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him. Now, what had Herod heard? He's the king over presiding over the Jerusalem and Israel. He heard Jesus speak mercy. He heard of Jesus speaking mercy to the woman. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Perhaps Herod thought Jesus might say those words to him because I've been haunted by guilt for a long time. Maybe if he said that for one who committed adultery, maybe he'll say the same words to me. Maybe he will say to me, receive my love and my mercy. Because after all, I've heard he loves the unlovable. He even touched the lepers. Perhaps he'll speak words of healing to my soul, because it's been a long time since I've heard that voice. And when Herod heard Jesus was coming his way, he was already having nightmares. He thought Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. When Herod heard, he said, this is John who might be headed. He's been raised from the dead. But the word says, then he hoped to see some miracle done by Jesus. And he questioned Jesus with many words. But Jesus answered him, nothing. The only man in the word Jesus did not speak to Because if you cut off the voice of repentance in your life, Jesus has nothing left to say to you. And one day, 
you will hear him say these words. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. It's a serious thing to cut off conviction. As Paul describes it, searing your conscience with a hot iron, which means you have burned it to the point where it no longer can feel it even when a hot iron's put on it. You are dead. You are calloused. You can go out and do things without conviction because you have cut off the voice of repentance. Jesus said nothing to Herod. And if you don't have the voice of repentance speaking into your life, if there is no conviction, if you are unresponsive to that voice, you'll cut off that voice and you'll no longer hear Jesus. And it's so easy in our day to be lulled to sleep That's why Paul said it's high time for the church to wake up because we feed the flesh. We do what we want. We feel like, well, I'm getting away with it. Can't be anything wrong with it or God would have stopped me by now. The next thing you know, with all the distractions and all the things that pull us away from our relationship to God, then we become at ease doing it. And more than that, we know if we stop too long, he will say something that we don't want to hear. So we just keep filling our hearts and minds with noise so we don't have to be still and quiet and listen to that voice that says, you know, I need to modify this. I'm sent of God today with a message. There's a price today that has to be paid. But you don't have to pay the price if you stop the dance. You're not hearing this by accident. This is a voice of mercy speaking to you. Even when he is telling me things I don't like hearing, it's his mercy that's speaking to me. And he says, do not harden your heart because if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. hardening of the heart will result in what happened to Herod. How cold can you get? How burned over can you get? How many sermons can you ignore? How many times does God have to keep sending his word, his spirit, until we say, yes, sir? This is a day for change. I think it's exciting for turnaround repentance. There's great hope in that. Because when that began to happen two other times in our culture, to the members of the church of Jesus, who at a core were just a handful and said, we need to repent and change our ways and call on the name of the Lord. That's exciting because that's the beginning of God doing a great deep work in us that's transformational. Jesus will wash you Jesus will cleanse you. Jesus will empower you by his spirit to live a victorious life. Not a life of failure. And ultimately one day when you stand before him with nothing to present, because I'm going to live for myself. I'm grateful for conviction. I'm grateful when the Holy Spirit starts speaking to me in that still small voice in that quiet moment and he reminds me tells me pokes me and then I humble myself and I allow my heart to break 
I say, yes, you're right. That's called repentance. I say, yes, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm grateful for that. It tells me something. He still loves me. I'm still in fellowship. I'm still in a working relationship with him. I'm still under construction. It tells me he's not done with me. He's not going to push me aside and put me on the sidelines. He's got a plan for me, and I'm so thankful. It means it's going to be better tomorrow than it was today. And if you believe that, lift your hands. Stand with me. Lift your hands and say, thank the Lord.